Having sung Psalm 103, we are now going to read Psalm 103. So open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 103, and if you have a copy of uh, the scriptures from the um, podiums in the back, <clears throat> it's on page 502. As you're turning, uh, this psalm begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and we have sung the song, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and one of the phrases that we sang earlier was, <clears throat> Sing like never before. I couldn't help but think as I sang that song that my mom and Lawson's mom has joined others who've gone before and they're singing like never before. <clears throat> so let's uh, read Psalm 103 together. <clears throat> you don't read out loud, I do. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. <clears throat> he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. In its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, who minister, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Well, isn't this psalm glorious? It's, it almost preaches itself, so let's just pray and we'll go home. We've sung it. We've heard it read. Um, I hope I can add something of help to us. Um, but there's sometimes revelations in God's Word, like Psalm 103, that are just so breathtaking in their splendor and greatness and majesty that you have to pray for God's strength even to receive it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that he prays that we would be granted power, or strength and power from his spirit to comprehend his love. And so the first thing I want to do is pray for us because if we don't pray together and ask God to meet us as we talk about and think through this psalm together, it'll just blow across our minds, it'll just create a fog over our hearts and souls, and it won't really impact us the way we need it. We need God to understand God. We need God's spirit and God's power to comprehend God's love. So let's pray together before we get into this psalm. Father, we do pause right now and acknowledge that apart from the power of your Holy Spirit right now in our assembly together here this morning, giving us strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the height and width and breadth and depth of the love of God in Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Unless your Spirit grants us that knowledge and help and strength and power, we will not be helped. So please, Spirit, come this morning by your mercy and shed abroad afresh in our hearts the love of God. This is one of the reasons you were sent, according to Romans 5 is to bring home the Father's love to us. I think of how you descended upon the Lord Jesus at his baptism as the Father was announcing, this is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Father, as you make that announcement in this psalm this morning, Spirit, would you descend upon us and bring it home to us so that we might leave here changed, and gripped and reminded, oh, how great a love the Father has lavished upon us. Stun us, captivate us, ravish us, transform us by your love this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon, famous British preacher of the late 1800s, wrote of Psalm 103, the psalm we're going to consider this morning, the following words. He says, quote, as in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others, so among even the inspired psalms there are heights of song which overtop the rest. This 103rd psalm has ever seemed to us to be the Monte Rosa, the highest point of the divine chain of mountains of praise glowing with a ruddier light than any of the rest. He goes on to say, There is too much in the psalm for a thousand pens to write. And it is one of those all-comprehending scriptures, which is a Bible in itself. And it might alone suffice for the hymn book of the church. End quote. So when Charles Spurgeon tells you that, ain't no hope of me ascending that mountaintop at all this morning. I mean, we could spend a year on this 
going verse by verse, seeking to mine out all the riches, and we would still come up, I think, at the end, a little bit for the poorer, realizing all that was still yet to be seen. Because as soon as we would get to that mountaintop or that vista, lo and behold, we'd see 15 other mountaintops that are yet to be explored in their greatness and their glory. So my goal is just to get us on the mountain this morning, get us a little bit up to the point where we can experience the rush of sliding down it, just as the kids are coming back from the ski retreat. I thought that'd be appropriate analogy to introduce the sermon this morning. So, so this psalm is a call to worship. And it's a specific call to worship God for his goodness, to celebrate him for his love to us. And part of living our lives, Coram Deo, which is the title of this five-week sermon series we've been in, Part of living our lives before the presence of God is learning to revel in His goodness and letting that revelation of His goodness lead us to a life of worship of Him. It's not just about the things we've talked about, as important those things are, commitment to God and learning to confess our sins and receive His conviction, learning to manage crises and difficulties and trials as they enter our lives, or even being comforted by God's care. But it's learning to be so enraptured and, and enriched and grabbed a hold of by His love and His goodness that our life begins to be shaped by a devotion and a worship of Him and to Him. So worship, then, is experiencing God in our innermost being, in our soul, and then allowing that revelation to shape us in such a way that we respond to Him in a life of worship and devotion for all that He is to us. Derek Kidner, a famous commentator on the Psalms, wrote the following in a very succinct way, which I always appreciate in Kidner's commentaries. He says, Admiring gratitude shines through every line of this hymn to the God of all grace. And he says, In the galaxy of the Psalms, this psalm is a star of first magnitude. And that's really the, the heartbeat of Psalm 103, is admiring gratitude. That's what David is doing. He is filled with gratitude to God for his love, and he is admiring or worshiping God in light of it. David is surveying the love and compassion of God toward his people, and in every line of this masterful psalm, David is calling his soul and our souls to join him in praising God. Ligon Duncan says, Understanding and experiencing God's grace, the way David does here, engenders gratitude in our hearts, and that leads to a life of thanksgiving and praise. So that's, that's what it's about. It's about understanding God's grace, leading us to gratitude, which leads us to a life of thanksgiving and praise. So here's where we're going this morning. This psalm is conveniently, I think, divided up into three parts. In verses 1 and 2, you've got David's resolve to praise. We're going to spend just a few minutes on that. And then the, 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 the body of the psalm is verses 3 through 19, where David lists reasons for praise, one reason after another. Not 10,000, as we sang earlier, although there could be 10,000 reasons for our hearts to find to praise the Lord. But I'm going to give us eight. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, is on point number two, talking about the reasons David gives us to praise the Lord. And then finally, we'll wrap up with the reinforcement 
of praise at the end of the psalm in verses 20 through 22 where David calls upon us, the angels of God, the works of God to join him and his soul in praising the Lord. So the resolve to praise, verses 1 and 2, the reasons for praise, verses 3 through 19, and the reinforcement of praise in verses 20 through 22. So let's get into the psalm with the first point, the resolve to praise, verses 1 and 2. Notice David's resolve. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, what does it mean to bless? This is sometimes a word that we don't maybe often associate with worship. We say worship the Lord or praise the Lord. We typically only use bless that I can think of, at least in the South, is bless your heart. You know, that's when we would find ourselves using the word bless. Maybe there's other scenarios that you can think of using it, but for the most part, it's not a common word that we just use and throw around. So I think it's helpful to, to understand what it means. When, when David is calling his soul to bless the Lord, it, it's a little bit more personal than just praise or worship. He's actually not simply praising God. He's personally praising God from his soul, from the deepest part of who he is. He is giving intimate, personal praise to God. That's what blessing the Lord is. It's, it's, not, it's not asking God just to be praised or to be worshipped, but it's actively and intimately and personally ascribing to God praise and worship. So it's a very personal act. And so when David is doing this and he's calling his soul to bless the Lord, he's calling it to an intimate, personal form of praise. Now, I want you to notice something here. David is not talking to us, first and foremost. He's talking to himself. And he's not giving himself excuses for why God shouldn't be praised in worship. You know, we, we can do that, right? We can find all kinds of reasons why our life is difficult or why there's opposition against us or why we're struggling in various ways. And there's lots of reasons we can come up with, well, I'm just not, I just don't want to praise the Lord. I'm just not feeling it today. Well, what would David have to say to us when we're in those kind of funky conditions? I think the thing he would tell you to do is tell your soul to praise God and do it. That's what he would tell you to do. And we, we have to instruct our souls to do what our souls were made to do when they don't feel like doing what they were made to do. And so David is calling to his soul and he's saying, soul, bless the Lord, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now, I don't know if you've done that lately. That doesn't always work. Okay? So that's why the psalm doesn't stop there. Then say, when you don't feel like bless the Lord, just tell yourself to bless the Lord and you'll bless the Lord. That's not how it works. Just because you tell your soul to bless the Lord doesn't mean your soul will want to bless the Lord. So David gives us a key phrase here that unpacks the rest of this psalm in how we get our souls to bless the Lord when they don't feel like blessing the Lord. And it's in that second little phrase in verse 2. Forget not all his benefits. Because that's likely what got our souls into the funk in the first place. We're not focused 
on, our, on God's benefits to us and the ways in which he blesses our lives. We're focusing on all the benefits we would like to have and are missing out on and we're blaming God for. That's a quick way to get yourself into an idolatrous situation which brings funk into your soul. And, uh, and David says the way we get out of this, the way we restore our souls to sanity is to bring to remembrance all of God's benefits toward us. It is in remembering the benefits, that is the good things that God does, that our souls are brought into a condition to bless him. And so, that's verses 1 and 2. That's the resolve to praise. We resolve, how do we, how do we resolve to praise? We call our souls to account for their failure to bless the Lord, and then we give our souls reasons to do so. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning, is that all the reasons that we have and all the things we can tell our souls to give it incentive to bless God. I've got eight of them this morning under this second heading called the reasons for praise. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 19. So let's dive in this morning and pray that as we unpack these benefits and begin exploring all the good things that God has done for us, that the Lord by the Holy Spirit will meet us and encourage us. And by the end of this time together, our souls will be recalibrated to their created, redeemed condition to bless and praise God. And you will leave here with a sense of that blessing on your own heart. Here's the first one. The first reason for praise is in verses 3 and 4, and it's God's pardon. God's pardon, his forgiveness. That's where David starts. Look at verse 3. Who forgives, who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now there's four mountaintops right there that we could spend whole sermons on, but let me just give us, I hope, an appetizer that will encourage our souls to bless God. First of all, he begins with forgiveness, that God has forgiven not just some of our sin, not just our past sin, not just our present sin, not just our future sin, but all of our sin. All of our sin, if we belong to him, are, is completely forgiven. He is healed he heals all our diseases. Now, of course, as we know, that healing sometimes comes in, in, in his merciful deliverances and healing in this life. But it will most certainly come when we are delivered from this body of death and we are raised to newness of life in Christ, in his presence, when we stand before him clothed completely in the righteousness of Christ and we are completely forgiven and we are able to, at that moment, when our glorified souls are made perfect and delivered from all disease. It will not always be this way, brothers and sisters. We will not always struggle with head colds and flu and cancer and death. But the Lord will step in and will decisively deal the death blow to all of our diseases and will heal us. Look at verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit. Now, this is certainly referring to the pits in life that are some of the crises that we've already talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were exploring how the Psalms help us deal with difficulty. Certainly, David was in many pits. Psalm 40 talks about one of them and uses that very language of being in the pit 
And there are certainly pits that we find ourselves, pits of despair and discouragement and depression and struggle. But I don't think this is the primary idea here. This is the pit of the grave. That the, the deepest pit that all of us will find ourselves in is six feet under the earth. Every one of us, if Jesus tarries, is going to be there, including the guy standing before you this morning, maybe sooner than some of you. Who knows? God knows. But he says here, David reminds himself that one of the benefits is that God will redeem us from the pit. He won't leave us there. We're going to be raised from the dead. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God and sat down at his right hand, so the image here is our lives being resurrected. And we will receive a new glorified body at the return of Jesus And we will not be left in the grave, and death will not have the last word, but our lives will be redeemed and saved and rescued. And then we will be crowned with steadfast love and mercy, eternal life forever and ever and ever. So you see the the full range of God's pardon here in verses 3 and 4, that he forgives us, that he heals us, that he redeems us, and he crowns us. Our forgiveness is a means to an end. It's a means to life in the presence of God forever and ever. Resurrected existence on a new heavens and a new earth, which the rest of the Bible teases that out, and which we just get a glimpse of here in Psalm 103. So that's God's pardon. And that's where we should start often when we're calling our souls to remember the Lord and all his benefits. Think about your sin. But don't stop at your sin. Think about God's forgiveness of your sin. And remind yourself that through the blood of Jesus and trust in him that he has forgiven all of your iniquity, healed all of your diseases, redeemed your life from the pit, and crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. Those are present tense realities that are working themselves out in our lives right now. God is forgiving you. God is healing you. God is redeeming you. God is crowning you, and he will do so. So God's pardon. Number two, second reason for praise is God's pleasure. God's pleasure. Look at verse five. Who satisfies you? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Now, now, now think about that. What have we been talking about? Forgiveness, healing, redeeming, crowning, satisfying. You notice this is the opposite of the way our lives go in this world oftentimes? We don't go. I mean, in our lives in this world, we go from young to old. And it's a depressing thought. You eventually, I mean, you grow up, you kind of peak Physically, mentally, emotionally, strength-wise, vigor, humanity, life, and then it slowly starts to taper off. Slowly, 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 until the end. But the, the, the trajectory here with God is totally different. It's not, it's not like this. It's like this. Do you see that? Do you see what's going on in the first... Verses 3 through 5 here, he's saying you get, you're forgiven, and then healing, redemption, crowning, satisfying. 
so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Life in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity is described in verse 5 as a life of youth renewed. It's when we're at our most strong and vigorous. And it's a life that is described as the time in which we're most satisfied. I mean, if you think about it, that's really all of our memories, all of our nostalgia, all of the things that kind of lock into our memories are oftentimes memories associated with youth. And there could be foolishness mixed in there too that we kind of have regret for. But, but we look back on that, and that's not wrong in and of itself because we are made, in a sense, to be young forever. To be in that peak season of life where our energy is the most and where our satisfaction is the greatest and we feel like everything good is in front of us. And this is the perspective that God gives us as his children. This is the pleasure that comes from being God's child. It's like we were reminded last week from Tim in Psalm 23 that for us as God's children are good things can never be lost. And the bad things turn out for good, and the best is always yet to come. It's always yet to come. This conveyor belt of corpses, this trail of tears that we call life, is not life in a sense. Of course, it's very real. We're alive. We're living. I'm not woke like I've arrived at some new plane of consciousness. No, I'm talking, this is real life. We are living real life. But this life is not the ultimate life. The ultimate life is life in the presence of God, forgiven, healed, redeemed, crowned, satisfied forever. And it's that contemplation that brings David pleasure and should bring us pleasure because Not only does he satisfy us with lots of many good things in this life, friends and family and pleasures and enjoyments and food and experiences and all those good things, but our youth, the thing that the death slowly takes away, that sin slowly takes away, will not have the final word. It will be renewed like the eagles. We will soar in freedom and joy and life unencumbered. That's the picture. Watch an eagle. It's gla- it, it just gra- great. Gra- eagles don't graze. They just soar through the sky, unencumbered, except for when they want to pick off something on the ground. And they're not encumbered by that either. That thing's encumbered, but not the eagle. It's, it's, it's vigorous. It's alive. It's soaring. And that's the image that we have here of life with God forever. So there's God's pardon. There's God's pleasure. Let's continue. Number three, God's protection. God's protection. Look at verse six. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You see, this is an encouragement because life doesn't look that way oftentimes. We look out and we don't see vitality and we see oppression and we see injustice and unrighteousness. And so if we're going to get to that point where we are 
forgiven and delivered and healed and redeemed and crowned and satisfied, the Lord has to do something. The Lord has to do something. And the comfort is, in God's character and in God's heart, is a God who works righteousness and justice in the earth. Which means that sin and the devil and wickedness and unrighteousness and ungodliness and injustice is not going to have the last word in our world. Because the Lord is going to come back and make it new. That's the promise of the scriptures. That the Lord works righteousness and justice. And notice, for all who are oppressed. God's got a special heart. I think we sang when we were singing Psalm 103. The downtrodden. The downcast. Those who are struggling to make it through life. Because of injustice and unrighteousness. And it is all over our world. And God has a special heart for those among them who fear him and look to him. And he says, oh, how one day it will be reversed. In this life, you experience oppression. In this life, you experience injustice. In this life, you experience unrighteousness. But oh, on the last day, when all my oppressed people and all my downtrodden people and all my weak and insignificant and nobody people stand before me, and their youth is renewed like the eagles, and they're crowned with steadfast love and mercy, and they're redeemed from the pit, and they're forgiven, and they're healed of all their diseases, and all everything is taken away that was bad, and that was a, a, an opportunity that was given, used to oppress them and work injustice in their lives. When they stand before me, and all those who had the good things in life and were filled with all kinds of, all their satisfaction, and all their crowning, and all their healing, and all their all that now, and the roles are reversed. And God says, look at my people now. You won't see an oppressed bunch. These are the heirs of the promised land, the heirs of the kingdom, the nobodies of the world who are now satisfied and crowned and redeemed and healed. That's because the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. How do we know? How do we know that we're going to be protected? Because this is who our God is. He will keep us. Number four, God's provision. God's provision. Look at verse seven. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He said, well, that's just, okay. It's a good statement of fact, right? He, he told some things that he did and he gave it to Moses and Moses wrote it down in the first five books of the Bible and we have... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we got the acts of God. But the question is, is why? Why did God make known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel, specifically the, the, the book of Exodus and the way in which God delivered his people and brought them out into the wilderness and then led them into the promised land? Why did God tell Moses and make known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel? so that we would be provided for and know that our God can be trusted. That's why. So we know our God. We know he is a God who works righteousness. We know he is a God of justice. We know he's a God who delivered us from oppression because he got us out of Egypt. We know our God is a God who satisfies us because he gives us manna every day. We know our God is a God who's going to crown us and redeem us from the pit because he's taken us to the promised land. We know our God is going to be faithful to heal us and forgive us because he brought us out through Passover. 
And we have greater manifestations of that because we know what all that was ultimately about. Jesus. Jesus is the Passover. Jesus is our escape from slavery and bondage out of our own self-righteousness and self-reliance and self-slavery to our own personal Egypts that we're all born into. And he has delivered us out and brought us into the wilderness. It's where we're living right now. Day by day, looking to God to provide it and grumbling all the time. That's the way our life is, isn't it? Grumble, grumble, grumble. God provides, provides, provides. That's what our lives are marked by. And we have to fight that. And we, by God's grace, we are going to do much, much better than Israel did. We got a greater covenant. We got the law written on our hearts. We got complete and utter forgiveness of sin and rescue from slavery and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the hope of heaven and greater revelation and all of that. And the Messiah presently ruling and reigning, we can make it. And so while we're in the wilderness, we're looking to the promised land. That's why God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. So that we would be uh, comforted in the fact that he will provide for us and take care of us just as he did the Israelites in those days. Which David didn't live to see. He's way after that. But he read the same Bible that we read. And he knows what God is like and how God has cared. So, God's pardon, God's pleasure, God's protection, God's provision. Halfway through. Second half. Here we go. God's patience. Wow. Look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. This is almost a direct quotation of, of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Don't you love that? You love that about your God? That he's merciful. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, which we'll get into in just a minute. He's merciful. doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's gracious. That is, he gives us what we don't deserve. He's slow to anger. He's not easily ticked off by his people. He's got a long, he's long suffering with us. Very patient. Slow, slow, slow. Let that, that, mar- just let that marinate in your soul. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As one writer said, God's mercy has a hair trigger. And God's justice and wrath has a long wick. What is God's default toward us as his, as his children? Mercy, grace, love. That's his default. His anger is restrained. His anger is slow. He doesn't get easily upset with us. He is patient with us. Look at verse 9. He will not always chide or reprove or discipline, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now that's comforting. Now you say, wait, hold on. We believe the gospel. We preach the gospel around here. And one of the benefits that the gospel provides for us as God's people is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and all the wrath of God has been propitiated and assuaged from God's people. So what's this language about him being uh, chiding us 
and being slow to anger toward us and not keeping his anger forever. What's all that about? Does God have anger or not? Well, of course God has anger. He's God. But anger and judicial wrath are two totally different things. Let's put those in different categories, okay? Don't, don't lump those two things together. We, as God's children, if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, if you're looking to him as your only Savior, if you're repenting of sin and seeking to follow him, you are no longer under God's wrath. His justice toward you has been completely satisfied because you're trusting in, in the one who justifies you, namely Jesus. Jesus lived in your place. He died for your place. God's got no problems with you. You're free. You have done exactly what the gospel was sent to accomplish in your life. That's why God sent Jesus. We've already talked about that quite a bit. And so when you embrace Christ as your Savior, you are rescued from the penalty of your sin and the just wrath of God against it. However, God is our good Father, and He loves us, and the way we live can bring Him greater pleasure or not. And what He's saying here, and David knew it better than anyone, we spent time in Psalm 51 earlier this month, when he was severely disciplined by God. You don't think God was angry with what David did? Yes, he was, and he loved David. But he was angry with him for his sin. And so he disciplined him for his sin. And we receive discipline, fatherly discipline for our sin. If we don't, according to Hebrews 12, we're not God's children. Because God's not an, a bad parent. He loves his kids. He cares for his kids. He disciplines his kids. He's a good shepherd who with his rod and staff comfort us. <laughs> Sometimes we have to be comforted this way. Sometimes we just get comforted that way. Right? But he comforts us. He uses the rod and the staff in different ways. Sometimes he's got to whip us up the backside. Other times he just gently nudges us along and, and makes sure we're not going to go off the cliff. But, he's a, but the point is, is that he, he's, a, he's an invested father. He cares. But the good news is, is even when he has to come and discipline us, even when he has to come and chide us, it's not like it's going to be forever. It's temporary. He just gives you a little bit of discipline, a little bit of correction and care. And he's not harboring resentment against you on behalf of it. He doesn't do that. He comes to you, he corrects you, and he lets it go. And he moves on. And so this is our God. This is why David is rejoicing over God's patience with him because he knows what it's like to come under the discipline of God and to have the discipline of God lifted. And notice verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 10, skipped over that one on accident. He does not deal with us according to our sins. We don't get nearly what we deserve when he's dealing with us in relationship to your sin. Do you, have you noticed that about God? He does not deal with you and give you the proportion of punishment commensurate with the proportion of your sin. He doesn't do that. And that's because he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. You know why he doesn't? Because Jesus did. Jesus got dealt with according to our sins. 
Jesus got repaid according to our iniquities. And that's why we don't. So let that have its appropriate effect on, on you as well. And then, verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, you can't, it's David's way of saying it's infinite. You can't get any higher. It's higher than the heavens. It's, it's as high as he can think of. That's how great his steadfast love is toward those who fear him, toward those who love him and follow him and revere him and care about him and seek to please him and glorify him with their lives. In other words, Christians. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west. Again, he went vertical and he said, look, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great God's love is for us. And then he goes, as far as the east is from the west, there's the horizontal infinite distance so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So God's love is infinite toward us and God's forgiveness of us is infinite. He separated our sins from us as far as they could get. There's no greater distance than the east from the west. And in verse 13, here's number five, God's pity. We've seen God's pardon, God's pleasure, God's protection, God's provision, God's patience. Now look at God's pity. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Dads, listen up. As best as you are as a dad in your best moments, when you are the best God-like dad, showing compassion to your kids, not dealing with them according to their sins, having to discipline them yet, but not letting them live under it like they're under dad's curse for the rest of their lives because they blew it. But when, you, when you're at your best moments, you are a glim reflection of who God always is. <laughs> you're a glim reflection of who God always is. And dads, it would help us if we would meditate on this kind of passage more often so that it would shape our hearts and our attitudes toward our kids and how to lovingly care for them in the way that God lovingly cares for us. So that's another sermon for another day. But what we have here is a father showing compassion to his children and the, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why, 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 why all this? Why God's Love and mercy and grace and slowness to anger and abounding in steadfast love and not always chiding and keeping his anger and, and, and forgiving us and treating us not according to our sins but according to the greatness of his steadfast love and re removing all of our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Why, why, why? Look at verse 14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. We... We, he knows life is hard. He knows that things are difficult, and he knows that we don't always know, we can't carry it ourselves. We're not meant to carry the burdens of life. He knows we're just dust. We're just feeble. We're just creations. And so, therefore, his love and his strength and his power are exercised on our behalf. He keeps going, God's preservation, verses 15 through 18. As, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. No greater, no greater example of our dustness than that, right? From dust we came to dust we will return, as Genesis says. So the wind passes over it, and it's gone. It knows it no more. Nobody's going to remember any of us. Okay, Jesus tarries 100 years, 
Nobody's going to remember Mark Redfern. Nobody's going to remember you either, probably. You might be on an advanced Ancestry.com website that somebody can get a name, but they ain't going to know nothing about you. All right? And that can be kind of depressing, right? It's like, man, lived a long time on the earth, and nobody remembers me. You know who remembers you? God remembers you. God remembers you, and that's the only person that matters is that God remembers his children. That's why he says in verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. That's God's preservation. God's going to see to it that we pass out of this world into his presence where his steadfast love and everlasting care will be upon us forever. And then finally, third point, I'm going to go through this very quickly, the reinforcement of praise, verses 20 through 22. Sorry, I left one out, verse 19. The pow- God's power, God's power. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's just David saying, all that God said about you and all this, all this goodness is going to happen because nobody's a bigger boss than he is. He rules over everything. What he says happens, and what he promises is going to get done. No one's going to thwart his plan. And if this is his plan for you, it's going to happen. That's our encouragement, God's power. So we've seen God's pardon, God's pleasure, God's protection, God's provision, God's patience, God's pity, God's preservation, and God's power. Finally, the reinforcement of praise. David gets to the end of the psalm here, and he's back to blessing. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, he's calling creation and all that God has made to reinforce his soul praise of God. See, that's what happens. This is what happens. Start off in a funk, call our souls to bless God, give ourselves reasons to praise God, and then we want everybody to know him. If you want to be a better evangelist, if you want to share the gospel more faithfully, live in Psalm 103 and tell other people how good God is. Do you know what the devil doesn't want you to know? What the devil does not want you to know. If you're, if you're here this morning, not presently following Jesus, day by day, moment by moment with your life, do you know what the devil doesn't want you to know? He doesn't want you to know how good God is. He wants you to feel like God is burdensome. The devil wants you to believe that God's commandments are torturous and they're the death of your happiness. The devil wants you to believe that God's withholding joy from you in the limitations he's placed on you. And if you are believing that, it's as old as Eden. That's what he tells everybody because that's what he's been telling Adam and Eve from the beginning. Did God really say... You can't eat from any tree in the garden, the serpent said. No, that's not what God said. God said you may eat of any tree in the garden except one. Our God is lavish and great and glorious and powerful and gives and gives and gives and gives and says don't do this, this, and this. But the devil wants you to think that the world is just full of no from God. And the only yes you get is when you're a self-sovereign living for yourself. That's the only yes that's going to come because it, God is terrible. 
He's a terrible, he's a taskmaster. He's laborious. Living for him is like drudgery. Boredom. The devil's agenda from the beginning has been to assault the goodness of God. To assault and malign God's character. It's vile to say that God is not this. The devil hates everything in Psalm 103. He does not want you to know a God who is that loving, patient, merciful, gracious, caring. He doesn't want you to know that. He wants you to see burden when you think of God. Lifelessness, boredom. He doesn't want you to know God is really as good as he says he is. He wants you to believe that he's a stingy God. One yes in a world full of no, that's God. No, that's not God. God is one no in a world full of yes. The God who reveals himself in Psalm 103 is incomparably good as he has revealed himself to be. And may you know that God. May we all know that God this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meditate in Psalm 103 this morning and be reminded of how truly good you are. So as we respond in worship now in these few moments left together, we pray that you would draw our hearts to rejoice and bless your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.